I'd like us to read tonight from uh, the book of James chapter 1 this evening, James 1. And I'd like us to consider tonight the first five verses. A little background to James. We know that the writer's name is James. That's a good start. Uh, The question is, of course, which James is it? And there were three Jameses in the New Testament. There was James, the brother of John, one of the inner disciples of Jesus, Peter, James, and John. Then there was James, the son of Alphaeus, one of the 12 disciples, but he wasn't very well known, so they called him James the Less. And then there was the third James, and that is the half-brother of Jesus. Jesus came from a family, Matthew 13, 55, of four brothers. Do you know the brothers' names? James, Joseph, Jude, Judah, and Simon. And then the Scripture says those four brothers, so he being the fifth, the five boys, and it says plus sisters. So it was a fairly large family. Maybe you could call it a homeschool family. Maybe that would help you. And so that was the family Jesus grew up in. And the writer of this book here is Jesus' brother. When did he become a believer? Not until after Jesus resurrected and, he, and, he, and Jesus appeared to James in his resurrected body and suddenly he realized that his brother that he'd grown up with is the Messiah. That's called a revelation. And his life was dramatically transformed. And he became the pastor of the church of Jerusalem. His congregation were almost all Jews who had accepted Jesus as their Messiah. And we know that the book of Acts tells us that not hundreds but thousands of Jews became believers in Jesus. But it also tells us in the book of Acts that they were persecuted and they were driven out of the city of Jerusalem. They were scattered abroad. They were living in foreign countries. And if you want to put it in modern language, James in this book is writing to refugees. Do you know anybody that's a refugee? That's who he's writing to. And so with that in mind, let's begin reading in verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations or various trials, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and and entire, mature, complete, wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given unto him. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray. Ask God to bless our time together as we look at this theme here, and that is getting the most out of your troubles. May we pray together. Father, thank you for your word. May you bless it tonight to strengthen and to edify your people in Jesus' name, amen. I was born in a little country town about 15 miles from Valdosta, Georgia. If you have ever driven from Atlanta, Georgia to Orlando, Florida on I-75, you went right through the heart of Valdosta. It's 15 miles north of the Florida state line. On Highway 84, going due west out of Valdosta, if you'll go 15 miles, you'll come to a little sleepy town called Quitman, Georgia. 
That's where I was born. My grandfather, Dr. A.B. Jones, delivered me into this world. I'm the first of four children to be born into our family. And that's where my mother grew up. And so that's where we would go to see our grandparents. And I have multiple fond memories of going to my grandparents' home. And there's one memory I'll never forget. It's the memory of a man that used to work for my grandmother. That was back in the days before you had the landscaping teams that would go about and work on people's yards. This gentleman that would come to work for my grandmother would cut grass and trim hedges and pick weeds and plant flowers. What I remember the most about him was his name. Now, I don't know what his mother called him. I only know what his nickname was. That's what we called him. And he used to come to my grandmother's house on a regular basis, and his name was Trouble. May I ask you a question tonight? Does trouble ever come to your house? How about on a regular basis? James is writing to the people of God, helping them understand how to view and approach and respond to the troubles of life. We cannot be good Christians without great tribulations. We cannot grow without going through times in our life where we will go through various trials and testings. This is a part of the way God grows up his people. So tonight as we look at this passage of Scripture and try to understand it from a divine perspective, let's understand trouble, first of all, by recognizing that trouble, troubles and trials are things that come into our life that are very, very difficult. That's the idea of the word here in verse 2 when he says, when you fall into diverse temptations. I'm reading from the King James Version, and the word temptation here is not a solicitation to evil. It's not a temptation to do something bad. It's not something on the inside. It's actually something on the outside. It's referring to pressure that comes into my life that is very, very difficult. It is something that comes into my life that I do not expect. It is something that is undesirable. Peter said it this way in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 6, wherein you greatly rejoice, speaking of your salvation, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness, heaviness, through manifold temptations. That is, you are weighed down. You are under stress. You are even to the point of distress because of various trials. So what is a trial? It's pressure that comes into my life from the outside that's hard, it's difficult. I mean, mean, think about it. How tough would it be to be a refugee? You know, most people that are refugees come from a place where they live that's like you and I. They have a home, they have a job, they have a family, they have friends, they live, they live in a culture and a society where they have relationships and interconnections and then suddenly because of war or internal strife <coughs> or all kinds of things that come into their life, suddenly they're driven out of their home and they find themselves at the lowest common denominator of life, 
No job, no status, no way of means being taken care of. Think of the difficulties that they go through where there's sickness and abandonment and confusion and disappointment and poverty and harassment and abuse and stress, all of these things that they went through. And the idea is that these are things that come into our life that we didn't plan them It's really not necessarily our fault. In some cases, they are unavoidable. And so he says to God's people, and I think in a very understanding, in a very pastoral way, he's saying, I understand the pressures that you're facing. Count it all joy when you fall. That word fall is the exact same word that was used For the man that was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, remember the story of the Good Samaritan? And the Bible says he fell among the thieves. What does that mean? It means he encountered them. They they were looking for him. They were waiting for him. If he knew that they were there, he would have avoided them, but he didn't know that they were there, and so he couldn't avoid them because he didn't have the knowledge. And suddenly, here he is, attacked, beaten up, left for dead, The people of God find themselves falling into all kinds of different trials in life. And I think the implication of the word temptation here is no minor irritation. It's not waking up with a headache. But it is something that has come into your life that's very hard, very difficult. You live with the pressure of it every day, and you wish it would go away, but it's not going away. It's almost like you could call a new normal where you're living with this difficulty. In 2008, I was serving as the camp director at Northland Camp and Conference Center. We'd just gotten the evening service started and I walked out of the building where the service was being held and I had to go to my office and I always had a golf cart with me and so I jumped on the golf cart. My wife was there and I said, would you like, she said, can I go with you? I said, yes. And so we took off and we were driving across an open field and I was driving like Jay Hughes' chariot, you know, and I was racing to get where I needed to go and my wife put her hand on my shoulder and she said, "Uh, can you stop? I said, right now? She said, right now. I said, right here? She said, right here. And we stopped out in the middle of the open field at Northland Camp, and my wife said, I got the report back from the doctor today, and she said, the work shows that I have cancer. I'll never forget it. This was not the first time my wife was diagnosed with cancer. The first time was 10 years earlier, 1998, when she was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma cancer. This was a new cancer, a new form. It was a blood cancer, and so it's the kind of a cancer that's not going to go away. It doesn't go into remission. You just try to seek to manage it the best that you can. That was nine years ago. And we are... And I'm deeply thankful that my wife is still alive. But it has been nine years. A new normal. Something that's hard. You're having to live with it. May I ask you a question tonight? Does this relate to you? 
where you're living, what your life is like. James is writing to these people who he loves. He's a pastor. He's wanting them to get the right perspective on the trials of life. And he's first of all being honest with reality, saying these things are difficult. But then notice he says something else before we go back to verse 2. And he says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials or diverse trials. And I'm just going to simply say that trials are not only difficult, but trials are are diverse. They're different. There's all, all kinds of trials. There's all kinds of difficulties that come into our life. Paul speaks about those diverse trials in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 where he lists them out. He talks about necessities, financial trials, reproaches, verbal trials, infirmities, physical trials, persecutions, spiritual trials, distresses, emotional trials, all kinds. Sometimes we have problems financially. Sometimes we have problems with people and relationships and conflicts. Sometimes we have problems physically, we're sick. Sometimes we go through very stressful situations. It could be external with the government or the community or the church. It could be internally in your marriage or your family or the raising of children. And they're all kinds. One is translated it this way, many colored, like Joseph's coat of many colors. And if you think about the colors of the rainbow, it's interesting how the colors often represent negative emotions in our life. Like the color red represents anger. What about green? Jealousy, envy. How about yellow? Fear. How about blue? You know what blue represents, being depressed or being discouraged. What the writer here, I think, is telling us is that the trials that we go through are not only different in the kind of trials that we encounter, but something even more, but in the kind of responses they evoke. Have you ever noticed that what's a trial for one is not a trial for another? What may cause one person to kind of be chilled about it, another person is just like going nuts over it. Different trials that we encounter evoke different kinds of responses. And I think it's right here we begin to see, at least have some comprehension of what God is doing in the middle of a trial because if trials are pressure and they squeeze us, what's on the inside comes out. Just like when you squeeze toothpaste or you squeeze a lotion bottle or you squeeze a ketchup bottle. And the pressure pushes what's on the inside out. When you and I go through pressure, what's inside of us comes out of us. And what comes out of us usually are negative, sinful emotions. And right here, we begin to understand that diverse pressures squeeze out diverse emotions. And what God is doing is he's bringing these emotions to the surface because God is trying to help you understand the sinfulness of your own heart, the immaturity of your own emotions, and the need you have to grow spiritually. You see, if you go and read through on through the passage, he's, he's trying to get Christians to be mature. 
But folks, you cannot be emotionally immature and spiritually mature at the same time. One of the greatest trials of pastoring today, and I'd like to remind you that being a pastor is not an easy job. So I'm not a pastor anymore, okay? I'm a college president. By the way, that's not an easy job either. But your pastor and I have not had one conversation about the counseling that he has to have, you know, the counseling of, of a pastor today. But I can tell you this, that one of the greatest troubles pastors are having today is they're trying to counsel people about spiritual maturity and they're emotionally immature people, even in their adult years. And they have not yet seen that their anger and their fear and their jealousy and their depression, they have not yet seen that those emotions are actually sinful emotions. And those are the very things that God is wanting to change. This is the point of the pressure. It brings it out. It brings it to the surface so that we will run to God and get grace from him to change us. So trials are very diverse, which then helps me to understand that number three, that trials then therefore are designed by God. God has an intention in it. You can't read this passage of scripture and not see providence everywhere. Count it all joy when, knowing this, trying of your faith, if you lack wisdom, ask of God. In other words, when we're looking at a trial, we're looking at it from God's perspective. And the purpose of the trial has a very clear design. You could almost take these verses and lay them over every trial as a template. Because though trials are different, they're diverse. Each trial has a clear intention in your life spiritually, and he tells us what it is. Notice he says in verse 3, knowing this, that the trying of your faith is working patience. What's the purpose of a trial? It's to test your faith in order to develop patience. Maybe, let me, maybe explain it this way. Your faith here is referring to your salvation in Jesus Christ, your personal acceptance of Christ into your heart and life. And God is actually taking you through a trial to build your faith. And faith grows just like muscles grow. How does a muscle grow? A muscle goes, grows through pressure. It's, you know, lifting things that are heavy and hard. And in reality, you really don't build your muscles by lifting weights. Actually, you tear your muscles down by, by lifting weights. And the way the body responds is the blood goes into those tore, tore down muscles and it builds it back up. It gives it that pump, we call it. And when you and I go through trials, we don't go through a trial and feeling like we're strong. We go through a trial feeling like we're weak. That's the point. Because with God, you can't become strong until you become weak. Because when we are weak, that's when he is strong. And the purpose of a trial is to grow your confidence and to grow your faith. But it is an enduring faith. Think of it this way. There's a difference in body types where the strength is is uh, enduring strength as opposed to like, you know, real strong strength. Maybe the best way to explain it 
is the body type of a 100-yard dash racer in the Olympics as opposed or compared to the body type of one that runs the marathon. Have you ever noticed the body type difference? The 100-yard dash racers, what does their body look like? They got more muscles than they need, okay? They got muscles everywhere. Thick legs, ripple board stomach, big chest, big thick arms, boom, and they run. I mean, you know, how hard is that? It's only 100 yards. Well, what does the body type of a marathon runner look like? Does it look the same? No, the dude looks like a pencil. You know, he looks like he's undernourished. But he can run 26.2 miles in like two hours and 10 minutes or something. It's crazy. Now, nobody here is going to doubt whether or not he has strength. It's a certain kind of strength. Folks, to live the Christian life, you have to have a certain kind of strength. And that certain kind of strength is not the burst of energy, 10-second strength you get in a 100-yard dash. It's the 26.2-mile marathon. The writer of Hebrews said it this way, we are to run with patience the race that is set before us. The Christian life is not a 100-yard dash. It is a lifelong marathon, and we are running a race to the finish. And what is that finish? It is when we end this life and enter into glory, faithful to Jesus Christ. And so we're going to enter into the kingdom of heaven with many trials, many tribulations. We're going to go through things And God is building that muscle of faith. And what's the result? Notice the next verse, but let patience have her perfect work that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. What is it in the world does it mean to be perfect? It doesn't mean to be sinless. It means to be spiritually mature. Maybe I could say it this way. You're not living on your feelings and your emotions. You're not a a reactionary person. But you're living a godly, consistent, faithful life. I was just thinking the other day, what an what a awesome privilege that I have to work in a place where I'm surrounded by scores of mature Christians. Scores who love God, who are strong, who are mature. But you know what? When I look into their lives over the last 20, 30, and 40 years, their life has not been easy. They've had all kinds of trials they've gone through. But they've gone through the fire and they came out on the other side like gold. That leads me to the final point I'd like to share tonight. And that is, then what am I supposed to do? How how do I respond? Because this is very practical. So he leaves us with some directions about trials. What are we to do? And he actually gives us three commands. Verse 2, he says, my brethren, when you go into various trials, when you fall into these things, what's the first thing you're to do? You're to do the most unnatural thing. You're to count it all what? Joy. Count it all joy. Is that what you do? Do Do you rejoice in your trials? Hey, sweetheart, how was your day today at work? Oh, it's wonderful. I got fired. That's crazy. Nobody lives that way. So, 
I don't think James here is talking about your natural emotions. Remember, the, your natural emotions are a part of the problem, not the solution. Joy is a confidence in God's control. <clears throat> it's learning what's hard to do, but it's necessary to do. It's learning to rest in and wait on the Lord. It, it's knowing that in the presence of God, there's fullness of joy. It, it's knowing this, that when Jesus is in the boat on the storms of, in the storms of life, he's able to settle everything down. Count it all joy. It, it's, it's, it's looking at, tri- at a trial and appraising it from a spiritual perspective. My wife's, one of my wife's favorite television programs is uh, that exciting show called Antique Roadshow. You ever seen that? To me, it's really a weird show. First of all, it's extremely predictable, okay? You know what's going to happen. Some guy brings out a beat-up table and brings down this dude from New York City that is extremely eccentric. And he talks about the history of that table, who made it, where it was made, what year it was made, what it was made with, what tree was cut down to make that, that table, the name of the man that made it, the name of the man's first wife, the name of the man's second wife. I mean, the whole thing goes out. And the whole time you're waiting to find out how much this thing is really worth. And then finally it's flashed up on the screen and everybody is stunned. They can't believe that this this thing is worth this much. Listen to what Peter said. He said, the trying of your faith is more precious than the gold that perishes. Your trial, it, it doesn't make sense. We, 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 don't, we can't see it. But we know by faith that the trials of life that you're bearing in your life right now somehow are more valuable than gold. If I had a gold bar up here tonight, by the way, a gold bar is worth about $600,000 on the market. And I had a really difficult, hard trial where you have to go through a longstanding problem between the trial and the gold, which one would you naturally choose? But according to the scripture, which one is of more value? The point of the matter is he's saying, you got to start living by faith. It means that when trials come, we step back and say, okay, Lord, I don't like this, and this is not easy for me. And and we can be like Paul. We can ask God to take it away. For he prayed three times for the thorn in the flesh to be taken away. But God said, I got something better for you. I've got grace, and my grace is sufficient for you. So number one, count it all joy not easy to do, but that's what spiritual people do. Then number two, notice he says in verse three, but let patience have her perfect work. The idea here is don't try to get out of the trial. Don't try to run from the trial. Don't try to manipulate change, but submit to what God is wanting to do. Stay under it. Let God do the changing work. I called up a very good friend of mine a number of years ago who was going through a really hard trial. And I said to him, my dear brother, I said, God in his providence has allowed you to be in this situation right now 
and I don't think you could have done anything to avoid it, but this is where you are. So stay where you are and let God change you. And he did. And he stayed under that trial for about two or three years. And then God in his providence moved him to a different situation and changed the circumstance he was in. And I reminded that good brother just a couple of days ago when we were talking about another good brother who was under a trial, I said, my dear brother, do not forget where God has brought you and how you stayed there. And my brother, you are a different man today than the man that I knew five, six years ago. Folks, God is faithful. He's not gonna forsake you. Sometimes when you feel like God is the furthest away, he's the closest he's ever been to you in your life. And then finally, one last thing. He says, if any of you lack wisdom, verse five, let him ask of God that giveth all men liberty and upbraideth not, and it shall be given to him. Now right here, I believe what we're seeing is the entire purpose of the book of James because later on in the third chapter, James asks the question, is there a wise man who is endued with knowledge among you? He said, is there any wise people among you? And I think James had a goal for the Christian life just like Paul had a goal for the Christian life because Paul's goal was to become Christ-like. I think James's goal was to become wise. But those are not two different goals. It's just, it's just two different ways of saying the same thing. It's the same thing but looking at it differently because the same route to wisdom is the same route to Christ-likeness. It's going through trials. So what does it mean to ask God for wisdom? It means, God, help me to understand and to see what's happening from your perspective. Lord, help me to respond in a manner that is within alignment to your will. God, what you want, because the natural response of anger or or being insecure and living in fear, or jealousy, or, or a negative sinful response, that's, or depression, God, that's not the right way. Lord, help me to know how you want me to respond. And here's the wonderful promise, is God gives you all the wisdom that you need to face the trials that you're under tonight. And God will give you insight into his word. By the way, how many of you, when you're in a trial, pray more? Raise your hand. Yeah. How many of you, when you are in a trial, read the scriptures and you see things in the scriptures, almost like you have different glasses on, and you see verses and phrases and, and, and passages that sort of jump out at you and they they do something for your heart and they feed your soul. How many of you have ever experienced that? That's the point. That's the wisdom from God that he's giving you so that actually certain scripture verses in your life become almost foundation souls for what you're going through, a foundational place in your life. And so ask God for wisdom. And he'll give it, and you become, little by little, you move from strength to strength and grace to grace, and you could almost say from wisdom to wisdom. That's why we go through troubles. So tonight, as we uh, consider this, and your pastor will come to close the service, I just hope that you as the people of God 
will be strengthened and you'll become wise. We are in real need today of strong churches. You know, a lot of churches today, and I'm not saying this to be harsh or mean or critical, but a lot of churches are about a, they're kind of a mile wide and an inch deep. I learned years ago, if you take care of the depth of your ministry, God will take care of the breadth of your ministry. God is the one who's building the church. We need to build his people by his grace through his word. May the Lord grant all of us wisdom to respond correctly to our trials.